We are continuing in John chapter 6. We've spent two weeks here already, and we'll spend three more weeks over the, the rest of this chapter. There are beautiful truths here that run throughout, and so in some respects, what we will do today is tee up conversations that we're going to keep having. Um, as Jesus has has taken the, um, or he has fed the crowds, and he continues to explain all of the meaning behind that feeding by describing himself as the bread of life. Today we'll focus in verses 22 through 40. Let me pray for us as we approach this text. Would you bow with me? Father, this is your word. It is powerful. It is true. It is gracious. It is for us. And I pray that you would, you would plant it in our hearts. That, that's the work of your spirit. So as you plant it, cause it to grow. Transform us by it. In Christ's name, amen. I'm going to look to this passage in, in sections. Uh, we'll read the sections as we go. I'm going to start with verses 22 through 27. This is the inerrant and infallible word of God. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there. And that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him, God the Father has set his seal. This is the word of the Lord. What are you working for? <laughs> Some of us, <clears throat> like the song, are working for the weekend. Some of us are working to buy that, that nice new car. Some of us are, are working trying to save up for uh, the vacation, the trip. And some of us, many of us, are just working for survival. Trying to make it day to day. When I ask the question, what are you working for, though, maybe that's, maybe that's a bit simplistic. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to get it more than just merely what are you going to spend your money on. The deeper question is, what is it that you're striving after? What's the object of your real desire? For some, it is wealth. But could it be comfort? Could it be stability? Could it be affirmation, being accepted 
by others. When you find that thing, that thing that you've been striving for, how long do you think it will satisfy? This week I read a <clears throat> blog post by Scott Sauls, a pastor in, in Nashville, and, and he, he wrote this, uh, this blog titled Successful and Unhappy. In it, he referenced Marcus uh, Person, I believe. Um, Person was the creator, inventor of the video game Minecraft. Back in 2014, Person sold Minecraft to Microsoft for $2.5 billion. Not a bad payday. So Person was, he was sort of at the top of his game. He had it all. Everything that he had hoped for, dreamed for, and he began to go and enjoy it all. But it was telling because he um, liked to tweet. And he tweeted about his experience of having it all. person said this, The problem with getting everything is you run out of reasons to keep trying. Hanging out with a bunch of friends and partying with famous people, able to do whatever I want, and I have never felt more isolated. Have you ever found that the bread that you thought you wanted or thought you needed just wouldn't satisfy? So what did you do? Did you go looking for more bread? Did you look for a different flavor of bread? Or did you rethink your hunger? In John chapter 6, the people ate bread, and they ate their fill. We heard it a few weeks ago as Jesus miraculously took the five little pancakes and the two sardines, and he multiplied it so that 5,000 men, plus who knows how many women and children, were able to eat their heart's desire. But this passage opens up with the next day. What happened the next day? They wanted more food. So, they started looking for the bread man. <laughs> they were a little confused. that They had only seen one boat there, and, and they knew the disciples left without Jesus. They had their eye on him. So you go looking for him. He's nowhere to be found. There's more boats. They hop in them and they go across to Capernaum. And there, they do find Jesus. And their first question is, where have you been? Implied, how did you get here? Now, look, I don't know about you. But if I have just walked on the water and I get asked that question, I'm pulling out my phone and I'm showing the video. Because that's the first thing I want them to hear. Why? I've just got this inborn need to stoke my ego. Jesus is not concerned about his ego. And his response tells us what he is also not concerned about fueling. You see, he says nothing about walking on the water. That was, that was for the disciples. And for them only. Well, for us, too. It was meant to encourage them. Jesus didn't answer the question that the people asked. 
Because he knew that if he did, he knew that if he told them that he had walked on the water to get across to Capernaum, that it would have only fueled their further focus on the giver of gifts. They hadn't come to fuel worldly hunger. He'd come to redeem it. So in response to their question, he, he cut straight to the heart. Verse 26 says, Truly, truly, I say to you, you're seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. All of us have material needs. We even have material wants. And I don't know that the scripture is even railing against that, but it's asking us what is our primary focus? Where do we zoom in? What is it that we are ultimately longing for, laboring for? Jesus is telling the people, you, you came to me because you want lunch. I'm here to give you life. We all must work. This passage is not negatively speaking of work. It's one of God's gifts to us is one of the ways in which we bear his image and we provide for our own physical sustenance. Working is not bad, it is good. But when Jesus speaks here of working, he's, he's talking about our ultimate longings, our ultimate desires. What is it? What is that thing that we're striving for? And Jesus came to redeem that. Now, for the Christian, this is the truth of the gospel. He has done that, and he is doing that. It's a, it's a work that Jesus began in us at conversion, and that he will continue working in us until we are with him in glory. Has done it, is doing it, but how? How is Jesus redeeming our desires. He calls us to a different focus in our work. Let's pick back up with verse 28. Read verses 28 through 35. Then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. And Jesus then said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Last week, a friend of mine described a particularly hard day that she had had at work. And she said when she left work that day, she went straight to the grocery store. <laughs> See, she was aware enough to know what she was doing. She 
had a hard day. She was hurting, and so she spent the evening numbing herself through emotional eating. What is it for you? Is it eating? Is it drinking? Is it some other activity, struggle, vice that we look to when there is a deep void, whatever it is, that we look to for that numbing? We know, ultimately, it won't fill the void in our heart. Jesus is telling the people, and he's telling us, that he is the one. He is the one sent from God to fill the void in our lives. He is the heavenly satisfaction meant to satisfy and redeem our worldly desires. You and I, we were created in the image of God. We have hearts that were designed for relationship with Jesus, relationship in Jesus. And so verse 29 tells us how we get that relationship and Maybe more importantly, how we enjoy it. Verse 29, in response to their question about doing the works of God, Jesus said, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. This is is good news. And they hear it, and they say, prove it. Do you hear the irony in that? What happened at the beginning of John chapter 6? Jesus proved it. He offered the sign. He multiplied the bread and the fish so that the multitude ate their fill and then they picked up 12 baskets full afterwards. Jesus offered a sign and proof of his true identity. But they couldn't look beyond the gift to the giver. And now... They're asking for more. As part of their ask, they go back to the manna. In the Old Testament, the manna were the, was the little bread wafers that the Lord provided for the Israelites as they wandered through the wilderness. But in their going back to the manna, they, they reaffirmed something that we said a couple of weeks ago when they talked about Jesus being the prophet. And we said that the prophet was was there clinging to the hope of a new Moses. They're thinking in terms of Moses because they want an earthly help to provide for their needs and to give them an earthly redemption. This is... They thought Moses did for them back in Egypt. Jesus has just told a beautiful truth. That the work of God was to believe. And yet they're blinded by their own worldly hunger and couldn't see. So rather than believing, they ask for more. You ever had one of those moments in a conversation where you missed something important because your focus was elsewhere? That's what they're doing here. They're missing something vital because their focus is elsewhere. 
and bread. Let it not be said of us. Jesus is telling them and us that their hope and our hope for eternal life does not rest in a series of works, but rather in believing in Him. He's speaking to justification by faith, of salvation by faith alone. Friends, this is good news. And so how will we respond? Maybe you're asking that question today. What does it mean to believe? Last week on social media, I was asked to join a group. That happens a lot on social media. Most of the time I ignore it because I don't need another group. But this was one group that I wanted to join, so I did. But here was the interesting thing that happened afterwards. I went and clicked the little groups link on my account. And it took me to a page that had a series of bullet points. All of the groups that I had joined. This most recent one. It was one more added to the bottom of the list. No more important than any of the others. Simply an add-on. Is that what Jesus means when he says believe? Add belief in me to your other list of beliefs. One more bullet point on your resume added to a long list. Belief is not one more additional point of focus. To believe implies a transfer of trust. To believe is to embrace a new relationship. Jesus is saying that salvation is by faith alone. And this salvation is simple, but it is weighty. When Jesus speaks of belief, when he defines faith, He is talking about a transfer of trust. He is talking about a new reorienting, redeeming reality in our lives. Friends, this this verse, verse 29, is beautiful and it's meant to encourage. But I also understand as I speak of the weightiness of this faith that he calls us to. That some of us hear and fear. Am I enough? Is my faith strong enough to be a saving faith? Do you ever feel that? Do you feel it now? Feel the weightiness? But let me encourage you. And let me encourage you from the word of God. This is powerful stuff. Jesus is talking to a group of people who continue to think through the lens of worldly desire. They're still thinking about lunch. And some of us here may be thinking the same way. And yet, on the other side of the coin, some of us are here fearing that our faith is not enough. That the bar of belief is too high. And to both. Those who are thinking through the wrong lens of desire and those who are thinking, I can't be enough. Jesus has the same answer. 
to both, Jesus says the same thing. I am the bread of life. I am the bread of life. This is the second shocking statement in this brief portion of Scripture that I've just read. And I hate to tell you, but we're going to spend more time on it next week. We're going to explain it more deeply next week. But for today, I want you to hear that when Jesus says, I am, He's making a statement of His deity. It's not merely the sign that he offered that points to his deity. It is his self-description. It is his name. When Jesus says, I am, he is going back to God's covenant name. The name that God gave Moses. By which the people would call upon him. In Exodus chapter 3. I am, in the Hebrew, Yahweh. And Jesus here. In John chapter 6 offers the first of what will be seven I am statements that John will give us throughout his gospel account. Where Jesus says, I am God the Son. I am God the Son who has come as the bread of life. Jesus is making a clear and powerful declaration of his identity. And he is saying that he is the one who fills the void that no worldly desire could satisfy. Saying he is the bread. He is the one who gives new life. He is the one who sustains us in the newness of life. And to do that, he doesn't give a loaf of bread. He doesn't give a pill. He doesn't give a bank account. He gives himself. There's this call to faith in Jesus. It is big. It is weighty. But as the text continues on, Jesus makes it clear that it is gracious. Because his faith is graciously given. And graciously kept. Finish the rest of the passage, picking back up in verse 35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Sometimes we can confuse grace with niceness. We can think that Jesus' grace means that Jesus is nice to me. He sort of overlooks those faults in my character. He, he gives me a, another chance. Friends, Jesus is not nice. Grace is not nice. Jesus is powerful. Jesus is powerful and the grace he gives 
the power that, that he puts to work on our behalf is not in accord with our own merit. Jesus gives according to his love. And in his giving, he accomplishes his purpose. The text tells us that those who are given will come. Those given, it's the elect of God. Those given as the bride of Christ. The bride given by God the Father to God the Son and those whom He has given will come. How will they come? They will come because they have been redeemed first. Grace doesn't mean that Jesus was nice to us. It means that Jesus secured us while we were yet still His enemies. Again, more on this next week. But today I want to emphasize the graciousness of this giving. Grace means that Jesus gave something to us, that he did something for us. He did something in us. He gave us a new heart. A new heart that, and he was the first mover in this work. That's how this truth can be true. That those who are given will come. Because that new heart is marked by a new faith. And that faith, that belief is not a work. It is given. What does this faith do? I want to illustrate faith this way. Think about a tree. A tree needs nutrients. To live. A tree needs nutrients to grow, but how does the tree get those nutrients? It has roots. Now, the roots do not produce the nutrients, they merely receive them. The roots are the conduit by which the nutrients get from the soil to the tree. Our faith is the conduit. By which we receive the grace of God. By which we receive the gift of newness of life. And that faith, it too, is graciously given to those whom the Father has given to the Son. But this text doesn't merely point out that faith is graciously given, it tells us that faith is graciously kept. Jesus says, whoever is given will come, and whoever comes, I will not cast out. Saying, those who come to me, I'm not going to lose. I will never lose. I love action movies. I have to watch them by myself. Um, but <clears throat> I love action movies. And if I go back in my memory bank and think of every action movie I have ever watched, there is one scene that is repeated, I believe, in almost every single one of them. At some point in every action movie, the hero finds himself hanging in midair. He may be hanging off a cliff. 
He may be hanging off a building. He may be hanging from an airplane. But he's hanging in midair. And we're all wondering, is he going to make it? But here's the thing. In most of those action movies, there's also, along with the good guy, a bad guy. And the bad guy is also hanging. And invariably, the good guy and the bad guy hang, but the bad guy is not strong enough. To hold on to that rope or that cliff or that plane and falls. Find yourself this morning wondering if you're the good guy or the bad guy? Do you find yourself wondering if you will be able to hold on to that cliff? Do you wonder if you will be able to hold on in faith tight enough? Jesus says there's something very important we missed in the script when we think that way. He's telling us to look up. Because what holds us is not the strength of our grip. It's the strength of his grip. Jesus says, I will not let go. How does that feel? How does that feel when you are wondering if you've got enough to hang on because you feel like you are at your wit's end? I need that truth, and I believe that you need that truth as well. That whatever is going on in your life, that Jesus is the one who has you. Since faith is gracious. And by faith, we can cease our striving and rest in Jesus. Do you remember the initial question about our desires? Have you come to see the emptiness of your worldly desires? If so, praise the Lord and keep looking to Jesus. If you find yourself, on the other hand, wrestling with those desires, those temptations that keep coming your way, wanting freedom from them? If so, keep looking to Jesus. Because the truth that Jesus is telling us here in John chapter 6 is the faith that saves is the faith that transforms. And he's the one who's responsible and he's working in us. New belief by the power of the Holy Spirit And that new belief is a transforming belief that is growing our desire more and more for Jesus. Once again, the beauty of the passage is this. Jesus is not telling us to hold on tighter. He's saying, I've got you. And I won't let go. So wherever you find yourself today wrestling with this call to belief, wondering about the strength of your belief, fighting off the desires that seem to chip away at belief. Hear the words of Jesus. This is his invitation. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Father, thank you for this beautiful truth. Thank you that you don't call us to a series of works. You call us to faith. And you promise that 
you will give that faith. And you will keep that faith. So give us eyes to see. Give us a heart to believe. And continue the work that you've already begun. For your glory and for our good. In Christ's name, amen.